0: Hi, folks. It's Denise Howell here. And next up on this week in law, we've got Iaz Akhtar, we've got Jonathan Frieden, and Evan Brown. Groupon's patenting April Fools, and Amazon hasn't gotten its licenses. Is Eric Gartner being sued by Right Haven? No, not anymore. Thank goodness. We'll check into that and more here on Twill.
1: Netcasts you love
0: from people you trust.
1: This is TWIT. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.
0: This is Twill. This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 105, recorded April 1, 2011. Accidental Sewage. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Carbonite Pro, online backup for your law office. Carbonite Pro backs up your files automatically and continuously, so you're always protected. Learn more and try it free at carbonitepro.com. Hello and happy April Fool's Day. Welcome to This Week in Law. I'm Denise Howell. We're here for episode 105 of our show. And we've got some great guests to talk about things that can't be for real. Can they? Here on April Fool's Day? Uh, we've got Iaz Akhtar up there in the Twit Cottage from This Old Nerd and Tech News Today, most recently. Welcome to Twit, Iaz.
2: Thank you. Uh, just a quick warning to everybody I was a lawyer, I t- you know, took those tests and everything, so I'm extremely rusty because I somehow wound up in the tech field, but I kind of know what we're talking about. So uh, just be aware.
0: It's great. It's great to have you in the Twit family for anyone who's not familiar with Iaz. He's been doing Yeoman's work on tech news today for some time now, Mm -hmm. and has actually moved himself west to uh, the sunny state, California, to be a part of TWIT. And we're thrilled to have you here on Twill. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also with us, a return panelist on This Week in Law is Jonathan Frieden. Hi, Jonathan.
2: Hi, Denise.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Great to have you again, Jonathan, blogs at e-commerce-law.typepad.com. How mad are you at the Greenberg Traurig, traurig folks for uh, scooping up e-commerce-law.com for, out from you? Uh, under- they got
1: to it first. Uh, oh, did they? Okay, good. It was a little irritating, not too mad.
0: <laughs> That's good. I also
1: realized that apparently the second theme of today's show is uh, goatees, uh, so I, I fit guess. in with that theme as well.
3: Oh, oh wow, I missed out.
0: I know. Uh, we've got Ayaz and Jonathan sporting the facial hair. How about you, Evan? Have you, uh, It's too early for you in the year, isn't it? it?
3: It is. And, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll try to mix it up a little bit and, you know, get, get something here and there. It's just because I have so much uh, anxiety, I guess I want to change things up all the time. Nothing here, but I would have, uh, would have planned and prepared for that if, if I had known. So it's, uh, I, I'm the one missing out, that's for sure.
0: And As am I, so um, I'll keep you company at okay. any rate. So, of course, it is April Fool's Day, and uh, here I was thinking that, oh, you know, the, the jokes that people do each year, uh, there, there aren't going to be any that have a real legal slant, so we can just go into, so, straight into some stories and substantive stuff. But then I hear from Evan this morning, and I check out Groupon's April Fool's offerings, which are all about the law, intellectual property law to be exact, Groupon claims to have patented the entire April Fool's concept. Uh, Evan, you want to tell us about this? It's pretty darn funny.
3: Yeah, this is, this is great. Um, you know, Groupon, um, always, you know, the ones to have a, a sense of humor, probably still uh, member, remembering Kind of the fallout they had from some of their advertising with the uh, with the Super Bowl, um, you know, during the Super Bowl, some of those ads that you know many felt were in bad taste, kind of making fun of some uh, some causes, um, it, taking a much uh, uh, more uh, lighthearted approach to their uh, promotion here, but doing it in a way that can still poke fun. So maybe they figured out a good balance of how to make fun of stuff without making people angry. I suppose maybe there are some patterns. Lawyers and some strict patent kind of people who are upset about this, but what they've done is they have purported uh, to file a. Well, first of all, I think they're they're claiming trademark rights in the uh, you know the 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 term April Fools, Uh, and then they also have. Filed a patent application, uh, which is styled a system and method for performing jocular activities on an unsuspecting individual on a particular date. And so, if you go, um, I, I don't know if we can get the link to, to this. somehow it's on the screen now. If you're if you're watching, if you're um, if you're listening to this after the fact, I'm sure if you do a, a Google search for Groupon April Fools uh, patent, this will be the first result. But uh, you know, nice uh, illustrations of the claim showing the, uh, the conniving one over here uh, very appropriately with a cloud, you know, a thought cloud to the, to the left of him uh, thinking about these unsuspecting folks that he can, uh, he can uh, uh, you know, play, play the April Fool's trick on. So this becomes, you know, meta pretty quickly because it's a patent about April Fool's and of course, you know, it's an April Fool's uh, prank itself. But it's really uh, uh, fun to go through and read some of this very dense language uh, you know that describes the, the background of the invention and you know, some of the descriptions of the drawings. And then when you get into you know, some of the claims, uh, it really is fascinating. And I won't belabor it, but it, it's quite worth one's time to go through and read in great detail in the, la- in the nomenclature that patent lawyers use describing you know, this method for uh, misleading an unsuspecting individual whom uh, you, know, you are companions with uh, on a day like this on, on April Fool's. So uh, good job, Groupon, proud, um, proud to say that, uh, you know, you're representing Chicago very well.
2: Yeah, and, whoever well did, and whoever came up the with The
0: law those... is so uh, full of absurdities. It's, it's good that they've managed to hit on that and
2: actually pull <laughs> it out for April They have done it very artfully,
3: very yes. artfully, for sure.
2: Yeah, whoever did those drawings, I mean, if you've seen an, enough patent applications, they don't usually look as nice as those. I mean, usually it's like stick figures or like figure one, and they're the vague concepts there. But these look like little cartoons, and the, the flow chart looked nice. So I, I like it just as an art piece. Myself. Yes,
3: and there's there's actual emotions on the people involved, and, and you, can,
2: uh, you can see scheming right there on his face.
0: Well, and then they have the whole page of cease and desist letters they're supposedly sending out to companies <laughs> who, through their own April Fools escapades, have violated the patent. Maybe we could show one of those. There was one to YouTube about their uh, their viral video from 1911. Do you think they're really sending those out? And did they really file the patent?
2: That would be really interesting to see if they actually bothered to put it to the USPTO. I'm sure there's actually a whole bunch of those coming to PTO right now. They're just going to be like, oh, great. I wonder if they even look at stuff filed on April 1st. It might be very (laughs) depressing. Working as as a clerk there going, oh, no, this is not real, is it? A method by which you can prank somebody? If this was an app, I guess you could try to patent it. But it's not. Just a method.
0: Right. Well, well, how about this? Can this be for real? We got uh, a heads up from listener viewer L uh Niels Elsenheimer uh who read that Google was awarded a patent related to the Google doodles. And uh this is and this one's actually for real, I believe. Mm. Um maybe it was filed on April Fools, but I don't think so. A system provides a periodically changing storyline and or special event company logo to entice users to access a web page. So Google, uh, which does a great job with its Google, its Google Doodles, obviously, and people love them, now thinks uh, they should be able to patent that. Uh, Niels wonders um, how it's possible to patent it, even though they have been showing up since 1998, the Doodles themselves. I don't think, that, you know, if it's your own prior art, that's really an issue. Um, you know, maybe you're just late to the game and filing your patent application. Uh, Jonathan, any thoughts on this one?
1: Well, of course, Denise, every time I'm on the show, you go to me first with a Google, with a Google matter. Uh, <laughs> Denise, since I represent Google, uh, ah. I can't really comment on the matter. Um, but I think you know where I come out on, on, the, uh, on this particular patent. I agree with Google.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Completely in and your, entirely. In your view, they can do no wrong.
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: All right, well, I would say so say we all, but fortunately, uh, we're not all in that boat and uh, can laugh at yet another seemingly absurd patent. Um, it just shows that there's a lot
2: of tired people at that office. Need to mm-hmm. pump some more money into the PTO if if they're granting this. I mean, it, it looks like a joke, but I mean, they tried it and it worked. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's some guts. Right.
0: Uh, Bert, can you double check on Evan? I'm not sure uh, if we lost him or what's going on here. I'm getting strange texts from him on the side. Um, So what I'd like to jump into now, uh, because I've been marveling at the unreality of it all week pretty much, is this uh, Amazon Music cloud-based service. Uh, that we have been uh, talking about on TNT yesterday and lots of folks talking about online and in the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. First of all, can it be for real that Amazon thinks that a cloud-based music service is really what uh, people want to go to these days? I'm kind of thinking that they miss the bus on this a bit, that um, it might be a little too little too late. Um, that's, you know, I mean, from my own personal standpoint, I don't want to upload all the stuff that I've been listening to for years on iTunes to the cloud because it's just, uh, too cumbersome. And, you know, this is going to be a four pay service once you get beyond five gigs. And I guarantee you people who have been collecting digital music for many, many years have more than five gigs of material. Um, and frankly, things like Pandora have actually absolutely ruined me for this kind of cloud storage model. Maybe that's not true for everyone. Uh, what do you think, guys?
2: Well, I mean, for things like Pandora, sometimes they don't have rights to every artist like that, that I might have to in my collection of uh, CDs. I might have a whole bunch of weird things. Like when I was in college, I was picking up CDs left and right from unknown bands, and there's no way Pandora has access to that kind of stuff. Um, what I'm more intrigued with is the whole thing where they don't—they think they don't need a license. I don't—I mean, their concept is they have their own file, right? You have your own file that you upload to their servers, and then because you're accessing your own file, that's okay. Uh, do you think this? What about all the technical aspects of this? I mean, doesn't this seem like no other company would want to try this because of all the storage requirements you would need? Because if hundred people wanted to listen to the same song, they have to have hundred copies. Right, that
0: was the problem way back in the day with mp3.com. They had the logical concept that if you could demonstrate, if you could put your CD in your CD drive, and they had software that could confirm that, yes, you actually own that disc and have the rights to play it, then they were going to have one central storage location that people could access. Um, So they wouldn't have to replicate every single user's version of that piece of media. Um, That got them in all kinds of legal trouble. So as an attempt to get around that, Amazon appears to be offering a service uh, that's going to allow users to upload their individual libraries and then store them on Amazon's vast S3 infrastructure. But when you uh, begin to get into the licensing issues around all that, it's not at all clear that Amazon has permission from the content industry to be able to permit users to do this. Um, And they certainly uh, have not been buying into that with their comments this week. Jonathan, any uh, thoughts on how this is all unfolded and is it completely unbelievable that Amazon would go forward with this without getting all the licensing in place?
1: I, I don't know that it's unbelievable. I think that, that what we saw is after the announcement of the service being offered, uh, then we saw reports of Amazon entering into negotiations for the licenses uh, that the recording industry, the music industry said that they needed uh, in order to go forward. So uh, whether one happened before the other and, we, and and that was the same order that it was reported or whether they had been in negotiations and they announced uh, the, uh, the, the system or the service uh, prior to completing those negotiations as a, as a negotiating I don't know, Uh, but I, I, you know, we, we, and in some of these stories, they go back to the 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 Second Circuit's Cablevision decision is being support uh, for uh, the fact that the Amazon service is 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 legal. Uh, I, I agree with you, Denise, that I'm not so certain that Cablevision says uh, that, um, but I think that it does provide some support for their position. Uh, I think ultimately, uh, Amazon has uh, taken an aggressive position uh, in the hopes that uh, it gives them uh, additional leverage in their negotiations, because I think that what they're trying to communicate um, to the licensors uh, is we're going to go forward one way or the other uh, based on Cablevision. If you want any additional money out of it, then you better come to the table and talk to us now.
0: Back up for a minute for folks not familiar with the CableVision case or who don't remember it, um, and and give us the context there. What did that decide?
1: Well, in... In Cablevision, that was a, a second Certainly, well, it went up to the second circuit and it was a decision based upon a, a DVR case uh, where it was actually a remote DVR service where folks were taping or recording uh, video um, to a remote uh, to a remote service. Uh, the Southern District of, of New York, uh, they were sued by the content providers. The Southern District of, of New York agreed with the content providers and found that uh, Cablevision's DVR, uh, remote DVR service infringed the copyright of the content providers in three ways. Uh, first of all, by the initial storing uh, of the recorded content. Uh, second, uh, by the copying of the content to vision servers. And third, by transmitting that data, that content from the servers to the customer's uh, set-top boxes for viewing purposes. Uh, and that that infringed on the right of public performance. Uh, the Second Circuit actually reversed the decision and found that the initial buffering of the content doesn't constitute actually making a copy of the video. Uh, and that the customer rather than Cablevision who makes the copy of the program, which makes the service similar to TiVos and VCRs uh, and dissimilar um, from for an independent copying. So it was more like uh, time-shifting or VCR use, which was uh, a legitimate and legal uh, use of the content uh, than it was making an additional copy
3: for distribution.
0: What do you think, Evan? Is Amazon going out on a limb here?
3: Well, sure they are, but they have every reason to to do this, and you know I wonder if secretly they 're hoping that Google and uh, you know Apple will just go ahead, I guess Apple be a little bit more bold you know it 's already doing something similar to this it 's not really promoting it very much there I wonder if Amazon is also hoping Google will just be as bold as well because you know what is the content industry going to do? Is the content industry really going to sue everybody and you know cut off this um, you know this this avenue of of, of the ways that, that music may be enjoyed, I'm not gonna put it past them. You know, they've, they've made some some decisions as far as their overall strategy that, that I don't necessarily agree with. You know, they've done that in the past. So, I mean, Amazon has the weight, it has the, you know, it has the, um, it, it's in a position to be able to do this, to be able to take this risk. Uh, and at the same time, they, they're hedging a little bit, as, as Jonathan pointed out, you know, they say that they're still trying to work out these license agreements. It's not the best way to be the good graces of the person that you're trying to negotiate a license with to, uh, you know, essentially snub your nose at it and go ahead and, and, and do something like this. But you know, clearly, if they can do this, it's going to enhance their. I mean, obviously, it's going to enhance their profit margin, make that much bigger if they if they don't have to pay additional license fees uh, like this, so they can offer the uh, the the service to to individual users in a in a way that's that's friendly to the consumer. And, and um, I think if the, the content industry is smart about all of this, they can realize that, um, you know, this could very well uh, encourage and ultimately enhance the sale of digital music if, it's going, if there are additional ways uh, for it to be easier to consume separate and apart from, you know, streaming alternatives like Pandora and, and others, like, like you point out. I was a little surprised, Denise, to hear you express some skepticism um, you know, as to whether or not this would this is something that, that people would want to do. I I, I don't know. I, I hadn't hadn't, you know, come up with any kind of doubts like that. Um that there there's something just you know, really cool about having your own music collection, and this is a throwback all the way, you know, to when people started collecting records, I imagine. I'm just kind of speaking from my own psychological insight onto all this. I mean, it's really neat to have your own collection, your record collection, or, you know, going through the the 1980s, you know, the, your your tape collection into the 90s, you know, CD collection. So this seems to be like a natural extension of that. Uh, there's something, uh, you know, in inside that would make me re- resistant to just putting everything. Um, out there as a streaming service and not having some kind of control or minute um, quote-unquote ownership over something associated with, with my music collection. And in any event, there's going to be so much more storage and more bandwidth. You know, the practicalities will sort, them, sort themselves out uh, you know, through time uh, in one way or the other. So right. Amazon's I- just doing what they want to do.
0: I think different people feel differently about, you know, how they want to enjoy their music. But it comes down to something we've talked about a lot on the show and how, you know, our conventional way of thinking about copyright as opposed to di- digital artifacts um, doesn't make much sense today. Uh, nope. yeah, there, there was uh, a comment from Jack Valenti a long time ago at the first D conference back when he was head of the MPAA. And someone asked him about uh, it might have been Mark Cuban. Uh, got up and asked him, um, you know, uh, why can't I uh, make a backup copy of my DVD? You know, the things are ephemeral, they get scratched, they're delicate, I need a backup, I've bought this thing, I need to be able to play my media um, in the event something happens. And Valenti looked at him deadpan with a straight face and said, if you had a piece of fine crystal and it broke, you wouldn't have a backup of that, would you? So it, <laughs> it's, for them, it's all about the actual physical device or the physical medium and not what we're all actually wanting to enjoy, um, the item itself that's stored there. And you know, I think as long as you have the access and permission to get at whatever music you wanna be able to play, Um, then if it's in the cloud, if it's streaming, if it's something like Pandora, Pandora is pretty much fully sufficient for someone like me who doesn't necessarily wanna spend a lot of time organizing and DJing and setting up playlists and stuff. Um, There are times when you wanna play that one particular album and that one particular song, and so you want your own collection, or at minimum, the right to access that when and where you wanna access
2: it. So back to your point about the whole collection and Evan's point about the whole collections thing. I mean, are are you afraid at all about the whole access being denied because of contractual disputes between someone like Amazon and maybe someone like Sony? Let's say they had a fight, you know, five years down the road and now you've lost access to whatever Sony music for like a week or two. I mean, we've seen it with cable companies and when like when Fox wants to pull away from Time Warner because they're not paying enough royalties or whatever happens with that kind of situation. do you have any fear about losing access based on large companies having just squawking matches. Sure, Uh,
0: yeah. And I think that people have lost access to their digital artifacts that they've purchased before and have had a lot of outrage about it. Yeah, that
3: sounds like the uh, with the Kindle and the George Orwell estate. I mean, right. it's a little bit like that, uh, you know, with, with the rights holders kind of making a big issue about something in access being denied. So, but, I mean, it just seems like it's a risk that's inherent with the technology. And, you know, I guess there's always a risk that your record collection is going to get lost in a house fire, um, you know, clearly of, of a different nature. But, um, you know, I, I'm wondering statistically whether, you know, your record collection getting burned in a house fire and getting melted and, you know, lost with all the rest of the fine crystal. Is the same kind of risk as you know Amazon and Sony getting into a fight a few years down the road? Is it worth that the risk of that convenience and the access to all of this stuff? Is it a rational, economic, and just kind of overall reasonable decision to make to, to be supportive of a model like this? Who knows? I certainly okay, so- don't
0: there was one there are a couple of other things that made this story a great april fool's week story one was this whole sort of concept that i can't believe we're still struggling with the notion that what people want is to be able to play the stuff that they've bought the right to play where they are when they want to play it from whatever device etc and we're still you know in the midst of the legal thicket that uh, will someday enable that to happen the other couple of points i thought were pretty interesting uh, was that the Wall Street Journal came out and made this blanket statement about the CableVision case uh, that Jonathan discussed being uh, basically Amazon's safe harbor here, that it would shield them and protect them, when I think that really the use case of what's going on is quite different than simply having um, a, an in-the-cloud DVR service for one's cable recordings. Um, and finally, uh, when you dig dig down into Amazon's MP3 download service, terms of service. And I know, you know, we're we're supposed to be the people who always dig down into these things and pay attention, right? Well, we do when a controversy comes up, like everyone else, you know, people don't pay, even lawyers don't pay that much attention to what all the various services terms are. Um, I went and took a look and thought it was fascinating that uh, Amazon tells users they have the right to copy, store, transfer, and burn the content that they buy from the Amazon MP3 music download service. I would think those are some pretty broad statements and potentially fighting words. What do you think, Evan?
3: Well, I guess so. I, I, I was really glad that you noticed that and that you mentioned that in the Piece that was in Ars Technica where you were quoted about this this past week, um, you know that that certainly does seem to have some uh, to give us some insight into what Amazon was thinking. Are they trying to establish some, uh, you know, course of you know some industry standard or something like this? Saying, look, we allowed our users to do this for years and years. So record companies, why are you now coming to us and saying that there's some problem with this? You know, you you didn't complain all this time. Why are you bringing it up now, as if to say that they that the record companies had somehow waived uh, their rights to to enforce a new licensing mechanism or to to extract this additional p- pound of flesh you know when the, when they're trying to do this. So I mean, it makes sense from a conceptual level. I don't know how much attention a judge would pay to this, you know, if Amazon were to come in and say, You know, I just don't know how this would get teed up procedurally or even, you know, once it got teed up appropriately procedurally to even know how much attention a judge would give this substantively to say, oh, well, Amazon, you were doing this all along. So, therefore, it's okay uh, because it's, you know, these are just, you know, really the, the record companies would at least say that these are very important rights and that their waiver shouldn't depend on some obscure Uh, a couple of lines in Amazon's terms of service that, as we've already established, no one reads any any anyway. But I like it. And, you know, it's certainly certainly smart on Amazon's part if they're doing that. And I have no doubts that, you know, that that this certainly does inform that desire for them to want to have the, to grant these broad rights to, to their users so that it's not so strange and alien of a concept once they can launch a service like this.
0: Right. I wonder if Amazon might try to make an argument at some point that, hey, you know, you you bought into our service, you've been, you agreed to make your content available, and you were well aware, although no one reads terms of service, that this is what we represent to users. I don't know. It just it strikes me as an interesting mm-hmm. little uh, tidbit there. Um, Jonathan, do you remember back uh, in the Grokster case when our uh, soon-to-be solicitor general here in the United States, Donald Verrilli, um, made a statement on the record about users having the right to back up their media and how controversial that was. He was really the uh, first person. These. Yeah. From well, that I'm- side of the table to say, Oh yeah, you, you know, rip, mix, burn dudes. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I, I think
1: all of this, Denise, I think all of this underscores the inadequacy of the Copyright Act as it exists. I think most of it uh, is, uh, dates back to 1908. Um, technology has changed quite a bit in terms of the distribution of content and media over the last 102 years or 103 years. Uh, so I think it may be time for Congress to step in and, and clarify some of these issues. I, I, was, I was particularly interested in the fact that there were so-called uh, you know, IP law experts who said that Cablevision protected Amazon absolutely, and they were certain of it, uh, whereas I I think there is some doubt. And I think that where you have confusion as to what the law allows, I think it's a situation where technology has gotten to a point where the law has to be updated to account for the for the better technology over the last hundred years.
0: Yep. Well, I think it's a fascinating story and uh, we'll continue to watch it unfold. Anybody have any final thoughts before we move on to uh, another instance where I'm shocked that permission was not sought beforehand. Sure. Anyone else on Amazon?
2: Sure, real quick. If you want to actually back up your stuff and you don't want to go through this whole Amazon thing, you can do this, by the way, at your own house with, your, with, with software. With, I think it's called Libox, L-I-B-O-X. And you can just run your own cloud. So if you're, you don't want to even deal with this whole thing with uploading your music and you still want to access, you can still do that. So uh, on the tech side, it's very, very possible to have access to your stuff no matter what, even if everybody's all fighting on the other side right
0: and even if it's still legally controversial whether you have the right to uh make copies for your own personal use in that way right. because i think it still is legally controversial um okay so the uh the other company where you just go that just can't be for real um is the time warner cable app which uh, i can't remember if we've mentioned on the show before but as a time warner cable uh, subscriber i was pretty excited that they came up with an iPad app. And I thought, oh great, you know, still staying in the time and place shifting mode. Uh, I'll be able to when I'm not in my home to watch the cable programming that I pay a whole lot of money for. And uh, no, that's not actually how the app works. You know, for anyone who's been paying attention to that, you uh, have to be in your home and on your Time Warner cable modem for the app to work. So it's a pretty innocuous um, Instance of place shifting, time shifting. Um, It it certainly doesn't shift your place too much. It shifts your device from the TV to the iPad as it is right now. But still, even though it's innocuous, um, apparently the channels that uh, are carried on the Time Warner service don't think so. And uh, they think that this is an entirely new broadband platform and uh, have the same kind of complaints. Against Time Warner, as the record labels have against Amazon, that they uh, went ahead and did this without getting all the proper permissions. Iaz, uh, are we seeing a trend here?
2: Uh, I think we're just seeing a repeat of what the music industry did and what cables doing now. I mean, I mean, well, not cable, but what television networks are doing. It's, it's uh, more annoying than anything. I think uh, they're going to fight no matter what. They always want rights. Every which way, not rights. They want to get paid for every single thing on every instance of a download or stream of this thing. And the weird thing is I was figuring out, okay, if you use a sling box or something, that's okay. It's almost like where is the line? Like how close do you have to be attached to your set-top box? So if this was actually built into hardware and it could stream to your app on your iPad, that would be fine apparently. But if it's being Mm -hmm. streamed directly through the Internet, that's crazy. So it just seems like I'm not – I'm just wondering where they think the technical line is such that you should be able to access these things as if you were receiving on a cable box.
0: Right. That's an excellent point. And I I think it echoes what Jonathan was saying is that when we get right down to it, the technicalities shouldn't matter all that much, should they? It should be the functionality. What do you think, Jonathan?
1: Well, well Denise the reason that the technicalities matter uh, to the content providers here is that they don't get ratings credit uh, for shows that somebody's watching on an iPad uh, and since ratings numbers are what determines advertising rates for the for the folks that are still tied to that and they're gonna have to get away from it eventually anyway because none of us watch commercials with our TVs anymore but because advertising rates are tied to those Nielsen or people meter ratings uh, they have to care about it it's it goes to the fundamental uh, I guess financial model for the business. Uh, and in this instance, uh, the, the, the Time Warner uh, cable issue um, comes down to uh, differing interpretations of their carrier agreements as to whether these rights were already granted in those agreements or not. Um, so the, why, uh, the reason why they care is, is the, the ratings and the advertising rates. Uh, and it really comes down to not an interpretation of law, but an interpretation of the written agreement between the parties.
3: Well, that's really interesting that that's related to advertising in that way, and it's on this point where you can draw a line to the do-not-track controversy that's going on with you know browsers and all of that stuff because to the extent that you can't... Uh, track someone's behavior online, what sites they're going to, who they're talking to, and all that. It's more difficult to monetize that attention. It's interesting to see the the parallels between all of that and the way that really advertising kind of is uh, you know that that as a revenue vector is is motivating a lot of this behavior and not so much something that's inherent when it comes to you know the ownership of intellectual property rights. Is there anything wrong with my analogy there? Does it does it break down more miserably than? what I could try to uh, to find a way it does
0: <laughs> I I thought it sounded pretty good what do you think I asked
2: Oh boy I mean that just sounds like you could just negotiate and say hey listen fix the app so we can receive tracking information if they really want it to be that way but it seems like mm-hmm. they they want to just say look you cannot broadcast this at all and that's I guess that's, that's their first negotiating point and then they'll go back and forth and hopefully if they want they can have the tracking data and the other the weird thing was Time Warner only like had a limited amount of networks on this application in the first place, so I mean maybe they they foresaw there'd be problems here, or for or they they wanted to test some companies. I mean I know News Corp and Viacom were ticked about this, and they had cease and desist letters. Uh, They can fix this in software. I don't I don't understand why this is such a horrible point that had to take these these networks right off the application.
0: Right. And the thing that uh, depresses me about watching all this unfold, as well as Hulu and Hulu Plus and all of the different ways that um, the television industry is starting to enable its material to be consumed online or via the internet in various ways, is they seem to be focused on fixing the bug that is commercial skipping. That you know, the more, the more we go into um, various alternative modes of distribution, they're going to make darn sure that what TiVo and Replay TV started all these years ago um, gets itself worked out, you know, that we're all going to be stuck watching the ads. Uh, Jonathan, is, is that what it all comes back down to?
1: Well, it absolutely is, Denise, and and it, yeah. and it requ- they have to do that in order to save the industry. We, we saw what has been happening to newspapers. When the web came online uh, and people went to the web for news, they were getting essentially the same content they could pay for in a newspaper. Uh, and in many instances, it was available for free. In most instances, it was available for free. And in large part, it's begun to kill the newspaper industry, and the newspaper industry had to move towards other models for generating revenue. And I think that in terms of video content providers, you know, TV, movies, and the like. As we move away from a model that permits them to, to get advertising dollars directly or the traditional forms that they've distributed that form of media, uh, if they don't find a way to keep control of it and monetize it, then they realize that the industry will die.
2: The weird thing is for streaming things like uh, things on applications. I mean, wouldn't they have a different advertising model? Couldn't they put up banner ads or they could have much more interactive ads because this is an internet connected device? So you can have, you know, you can have like iAds on there or you could have uh, just banner ads or just anything that would show up. I mean, they could have a whole new model based on this internet uh, system that for some reason, like I mean, on Hulu, they get to dynamically change the ads. So why not just embrace this and just allow this to happen on a Time Warner app? Do you think they want their own apps like the, the, News Corp app and they want the Viacom app? I mean, what what do you guys think they are going for here?
0: I think they certainly want that. I, I think that they maybe there is some grain of wisdom somewhere in their organizations that is telling them that their customers don't want that, that nobody wants to have to be beholden to several hundred separate applications to... able to access whatever it is they want to consume and by the way Tama Home in irc has solved the commercial problem uh for the companies so you know here's our gift to you from twill uh play your commercials in slow motion so they look normal when you fast forward through them (laughs)
1: isn't that great that is awesome that's That's a great idea
0: yes but (laughs) the uh (laughs) the problem is you can't even fast forward when you're when you're on a service that is you know Blocking your ability to manipulate the media, like like Hulu does, you know, you cannot skip those ads. Or maybe you can if you are incredibly technically savvy. But uh, who's gonna really jump through all those
3: hoops? Then you then you violated the DMCA, probably. So right, you know, kind of stuck. Exactly. That, that content industry, man, they were thinking ahead. They knew all this stuff in 1998.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They've known it all along, Evan. Um, all right, so uh, more ridiculousness and absurdity. Uh, LimeWire wants uh, to not have to pay $75 trillion in damages. I don't think that there's any way, you know, that any individual or company could be called to pay $75 trillion in damages. I don't think LimeWire could pay more than a couple hundred thousand if they're lucky.
3: You could, you know, liquidate Europe or something like that. That might work.
0: <laughs> That's a great idea. Uh, But that's what the RIAA thinks LimeWire owes. Um, Judge Kimba Wood has been reining them in somewhat, as is her job, as the judge in the case, uh, saying that they're limited only to a single statutory damage award from the defendants per work infringed uh, for several reasons, including the absurd result which would ensue if they actually got a An award per infringement. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think about this one?
1: Well, I think in order to place the absurdity of the suggestion that they would be entitled to an award of seventy-five trillion dollars in the context, first of all, the judge in the case noted that the plaintiffs were suggesting an award which was more money than the entire music recording industry made since Edison invented the phonograph in 1877. <laughs> and if you think about the, the amount of money we're talking about, if you were to take it in thousand-dollar bills and stack it, you know, one thousand-dollar bill on top of another thousand-dollar bill, the stack would be five thousand ninety two and a half miles tall (laughs) so that's the size of the award that they're seeking in this in this instance and and it's a statutory damages award and i think the judge is right to say that that's not the intent of the statute uh for you to be able to come in and essentially get from a single uh, defendant more money than exists on the entire planet of earth
3: wait now were those bills stacked or were they end to end because that makes a huge difference as to whether this is reasonable (laughs) (laughs) it's stacked evan absolutely stacked okay then it is absurd
2: now, That's question. right. Way back when I went to law school, we had this thing called model rules and you had to have like good faith when you would make a claim like something like this. How on earth can any attorney write down on their on their on their complaint that this company owes them 75 trillion dollars? You do
3: it with your little finger on your chin.
2: Oh, just oh, I, I, I must have missed that. Was is that was that just added in the last two or three years? I must, I must have.
3: Uh, it's yeah, it's it's an, it's in the appendix
2: somewhere. Okay. It's in the comments. Yeah. I'll go to the CLE next week and I'll find out. In all
0: seriousness, well, well, though, you do it under the Copyright Act as it exists in the United States today. And you do it with a straight face. And I'm worried that Judge Kimba Wood is putting herself out there as vulnerable on appeal by reining this in because you know technically under the law you're entitled to your statutory damages per infringement yeah, as long as they don't bring per, up Per results. work
3: infringed I, you know, I, I never realized there was any ambiguity in this section i'm trying to look at it right now i actually look at me i have a book in front of me that you know it's Oops. intellectual property paper? statutes it's where is it jonathan you know is it it's section five something yeah, let me, I have it on my iPhone app here. Section 504, oh, geez, you got an iPhone. Here I am with my book. You're making me look silly. And I'm a
2: technology lawyer. Which technology will win, the search or the paper? <laughs> dun, Maybe dun, IRC just, dun, dun, will
0: write to our rescue. Um, Akhtar, you're absolutely right. And Judge Wood uh, writes about the absurd results clause and is relying on it. But still, I mean, you know, I, I think that anybody with a straight face would, would look at this and say, yeah, that's an absurd result. But you never know. I mean, it, it is at odds with um, the actual way that the statute has functioned in other cases. So, you know, I think LimeWire can absolutely, you know, if, if you're their lawyer and you're being a zealous advocate and you're also concerned about being in good faith and not getting yourself sanctioned for doing something that, you know, is so amazingly outrageous and not in accordance with the way the law, the law works, you go in and you make this claim. You, can, you do it. Every day,
2: I think to defend it, wouldn't the entire oral argument be like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> that can't yeah, be for that, real. And that, and that would just walk away at that point.
0: Yep, wow. absolutely. <laughs> well, Evan, did you uh, dig anything up or shall we move on?
3: Looks like it's section 504C1. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's saying that, um, you know, an award of statutory damages for all infringements with respect to any one work for which any one infringer is liable individually. I've just, you know, there's. I've always assumed that it was beyond reasonable dispute that that language for one work meant that you're entitled to one award of statutory damages per work infringed. So you've got one work and there are a million copies made of it. Well, you still can only recover statutory damages for that one work. Oh, this is I like remember, the, uh, you know,
2: the express line, what an item is. If you have a thousand <laughs> bars of soap, <laughs> that's right. is that that's one right. item exactly. or not? Well, okay,
1: that's... Yeah, well, I think... I think where the problem comes down is, is Evan, I think there's a dispute, uh, and I'm not sure what the Seventh Circuit says on it. You may be right in terms of the Seventh Circuit, but I think there's a dispute as to whether or not that statutory damage award is a per-work or per-infringement of work, uh, and the statute is not written so that it's clear um, you know, when they, when they go back to the Copyright Act to revise it and update it, maybe they should clarify it, but I think that there, there is an argument in some jurisdictions that it's a per-infringement uh, statutory award and not a per-work statutory award.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's that. That that must be where it where it comes from. I just remember being excited about you know a bunch of zeros when I had been practicing law for about two weeks, you know, and had my first copyright case, and then I realized that well, you know, the world is much more uh, cruel. I guess I can only get you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much more cruel. Poor Evan. Well, oh, no. on the other on the other side of the spectrum, you know, we're talking about people getting sanctioned for. Um, doing things that are not okay under the law. Um, It's good to see that ACS law is facing that kind of penalty. This is the company that uh, brought one of those mass file sharing infringement liability cases, threatening people with court actions if they did not make settlement payments of up to 500 pounds. This was in Britain uh, for their infringement. Uh, they've gotten royally slapped around, royally, haha, <laughs> <laughs> slapped around over there in the U.K. <laughs> um, and uh, the latest is that they're now going to um, be liable perhaps for payments running to more than £100,000 uh, for their tactics in that case. So um, NACS law, you know, aside from the... Uh, the monetary sanctions they may face. Of course, they have not been popular among the web denizens. They've been hacked. They've been DDS'd. They've been, you know, anything and everything that people can do to them has been thrown at them. Um, So uh, it's good at least to uh, see that that kind of check in the legal system is still in place and will be enforced from time to time here in this case. We're seeing it. Ayaz, any thoughts on this one?
2: It just happens to be across the pond, though.
0: Just yeah want to, I true. want to see that
2: see that happen here. This kind of I'm thing like I think the Right Haven stuff is kind of close to this uh yes. in the United States. So mm. I hope that this kind of thing happens with Right Haven a couple of times.
3: Yeah and it, you see it's trickier here because you know here we have the uh the American rule versus the the English rule when it comes to the payment of costs and attorneys' fees, and I think that's what you're alluding to, Ie, right? Mm-hmm. When you're saying, yeah, this is across the pond. You know, in the U.S., generally, unless you know the, you have a contract with somebody that that says loser pays the uh, winner's attorneys' fees, or there's a statute that says the loser uh, pays the winner's attorneys' fees. Each party pays their own attorney's fees under the American rule. It's different over there in England, and that seems to be kind of coming into play here. Now, the Copyright Act, and you know, we should all be grateful for the second opportunity during the show to get into the interstitial parts of the Copyright Act, talking about you know the award of attorney's fees. It says the loser pays uh, if you're the prevailing party. And uh, you know that's what the Copyright Act provides. If you know you've registered your work in time, and there's there's a bunch of other conditions that have to be met here. But but my experience has been that the judges are are here in the U.S. are unwilling to award. Costs and attorneys' fees, unless there's really an adjudication on the merits, you know, to make you know a real determination of whether or not there was there was copyright infringement here. I've been involved in more than one matter uh, representing defendants accused of infringement, and this is just so irritating. When plaintiffs do this, they'll file the lawsuit, they'll even you know get into some discovery and all that stuff. We have to really you know think about the case, mount a defense, incur costs and attorneys' fees, and then you know they'll just withdraw the case. You know, they'll just voluntarily dismiss it. And then it's very difficult. The case law supports the judges when they make these decisions. It's very difficult to get a judge to award attorney's fees when the plaintiff just kind of goes in, uh, you know, and muddies the water a little bit and then decides, oh, well, I didn't really feel like prosecuting this copyright infringement action anyway. So that's one point in which the Copyright Act kind of helps um, defendants who are... um, you know, uh, you you might say, you know, the the victims of trollish plaintiff's behavior, but it doesn't really go quite far enough, uh, I believe, at least when I have my defense lawyer hat on uh, thinking about these things.
0: Right. Um, So I want to get into talking about Wright Haven in a minute. Jonathan, before we go to that and to thanking one of our sponsors, do you have any thoughts about uh, ACS law as we close that out?
1: Well, and sure. Just to go back to what, what Evan was talking about, the problem with the copyright statute is that the attorney's fees provision of the of the law is written in a manner that makes it discretionary with the court. Uh, if the, the law were changed to make it a shall, to replace a may with a shall, then the court would be required to award reasonable attorney's fees to the prevailing party. Uh, and it could even be done such that it's a, a mandatory provision with certain guidance given to courts. Um, for instance, it should always be the case that a plaintiff who brings a copyright infringement action in bad faith should always end up paying the defendant's uh, attorney's fees and costs associated with that litigation. But unfortunately, because of the way the statute is written, that's not always the case now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, a lot of people feel that way about, you know, the entire United States judicial system, that we should just switch over to the British way of doing things and make it so that, you know, you really have to stand behind your claims. And if you lose, you pay the other side's attorney's fees. But Uh, we're a long way from being there.
3: We love litigation too much. You know, it would Mm -hmm. really stifle the the impulse to file a lawsuit if you knew that you really faced a fair chance of having to pay your opponent's attorney's fees if you lose. Right. And and, and I think that, I think that you find in, in, in Commonwealth states, uh,
1: um, nations that follow the British form of, of litigation, you find less litigation. Uh, and I think that's exactly why, is that you know that if you bring a claim and you lose, you're going to end up paying the other side's uh, attorney's fees. But but we tend to be fairly egalitarian in the United States, and the biggest argument that comes up against following the English rule is that – it. The English rule uh, disproportionately uh, disadvantages small litigants so that if you're in a situation where it's a big guy against a little guy, the big guy can cover the fees of the little guy if the big guy uh, loses, but the little guy can't cover the you know, multiple big firm lawyers working on behalf of the big guy in the litigation if the little guy lo- loses. So that's, I think, the reason in this country we, we haven't gone to the, to the English rule.
0: Yep. Well, you know who doesn't discriminate between big guys and little guys? Who? Carbonite Pro. Who? Carbonite Pro. <laughs> Sorry, that was a disastrous segue. But uh, I'm
3: just going to have some tea while you're reading this ad.
0: Absolutely. Have some tea. Um, And one of the things that I absolutely love about Carbonite Pro is that I am here on my work computer doing our show. And it has, and I use Carbonite Pro to back up all my stuff. Um, It has a function up on my little, uh, oh, I forget what you call this thing at the top of the Mac, but, uh, you know, little icons. Yes. Thank you. Menu bar up at the top. Uh, Where you can click on the Carbonite Pro icon, it's a little padlock. And you can tell it to pause itself for 24 hours because you want to make sure that all of your bandwidth is being engaged in other things. Um, Most of the time when I'm just working away at my computer, I don't pause it. I let Carbonite Pro run in the background because it is not a resource hog at all. It, uh, It waits until your computer is idle and it makes sure that all your stuff is backed up. Because, you know, any kind of loss of data is devastating. It's devastating if you're a lawyer. It's devastating if you're a parent and you lose, you know, your personal photos of your family. But when you're a lawyer or a business person, if you lose your client files and your billing records, I mean, that's just, you know, end of story. You can shut your doors. But that's why more law offices and other businesses are using Carbonite Pro Online Backup. Your files are backed up automatically, so it really gets done, and it gets done continuously. Whenever there's a small change, Carbonite registers that and makes sure that those changes are backed up. They're stored safely and securely off-site. Plus, each employee can access their backed-up files from any computer or on their smartphone with a free app. Prices start at just $10 a month, so you've got to start your free one-month trial at CarbonitePro.com. That's CarbonitePro.com. They're great friends of This Week in Law, and we really thank them. All right. So another good friend of This Week in Law is Eric Gardner. He's been a panelist with us several times. And guess what? It can't be for real, but Wright Haven sued him. Evan, you (laughs) let me know about this. Why don't you uh, tell me what happened?
3: Um, yeah, this, is, this was actually a, a, a little bit complicated, so I, I want to make sure that I, I get it straight. He is, of course, a freelance journalist, Eric Gardner is, and as you mentioned, he's been on the show with us at least a, a couple of times. He usually writes for The Hollywood Reporter, uh, but he wrote uh, one article for Ars Technica last uh, December, about uh, the right haven stuff and right haven is of course this company which is very closely affiliated with uh one of the las vegas newspapers is it the las vegas journal review or something like that where the, the las vegas journal review has assigned all its copyrights to right haven and the right haven goes out and sues everybody who like bloggers and little small web publishers uh, for infringement uh, when they will you know copy articles Owned, now owned by Righthaven. Right Haven has actually expanded its efforts to work on behalf of the Denver Post. So, um, back if you remember in the latter part of, of 2010, um, we spent a lot of time talking about the controversy over the TSA's invasive uh, search, perceive, invasive screening processes, you know, the TSA gropings and all of that uh, wonderful stuff. So there was a lot, of, a lot of ink being spilled about that, a lot of pixels being put to the screen about that. And so it was uh, the Drudge Report um, wrote about uh, that. And the Drudge Report had... And make sure I'm getting this, all, this, all this straight because, you know, it is a little bit complicated. The Drudge Report had, Drudge Report had written about that and had used um, a photo from uh, uh, the Denver Post, of and it's a, it's a pretty, it became relatively iconic. It was a, a passenger going through a TSA screening point, really, uh, we should just say in an intimate moment with the TSA screener. <laughs> I, I don't know who was enjoying it more. Um, and so... To, uh, simply stated, um, uh, Wright Haven sued the Den- or I'm sorry, Haven sued the Drudge Report for using this photo from the Denver Post. Well, then here's where it gets kind of you know multi-layered on all this. Eric Gardner wrote about that lawsuit that Wright Haven had filed against the Drudge Report over the use of that Denver Post photo, and in his article that Eric wrote for Ars Technica, he used the a snapshot, a screen capture from the um, the Drudge report, uh, using that photo which had originally appeared in the Denver Post, which Wright Haven was suing over. And interestingly enough, uh, Eric Gardner had gotten that screen capture from the court filing, you know, probably had logged on to PACER, you know, the service by which you can get federal pleadings and federal papers from the courts, had taken that from the, um, the, the court filing that Wright Haven had made against the Drudge Report over this. Probably and was in the their image.
0: complaint and a matter of public record.
3: Yes, it was probably exhibit A to the to the yes. complaint. And you, you can log on and pay a few cents per page to, to get access to this information from our federal government. So that all happened back in December. And earlier this week, it was either Monday or Tuesday. Uh, you know, I saw I, this is how I found out of it. I follow Eric Gardner on on Twitter's ERIQ Gardner uh, at, at, on Twitter, that's how you spell his name and he, said, he put out a tweet that said something like, oi, I've been sued by Righthaven so of course that, you know, wow, instant buzz right there and so the world was a buzz uh, with this news for about, what, 12, 15 hours you know, we kind of mm-hmm. got to sleep on it <laughs> and then the news the next morning was this great piece oh, this is just a wonderful journalism by uh, Nate Anderson again at Ars Technica who, um, you know, sets It tells us, informs the world that um, uh, Right Haven had uh, withdrawn, dismissed its lawsuit against Eric Gardner uh, with prejudice. There was some confusion as to whether it was with prejudice or without prejudice, but it was with prejudice. And that means
0: they can't come back and file it again.
3: Yes, over forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially, uh, Right Haven's version of this is, oops, sorry, we didn't mean to sue Eric Gardner because he's a journalist. It was, you know, a clerical error or administrative error uh, or or whatever there. So... It's just wonderful. One of it's the just,
0: many hundreds that were filing, and it slipped through the cracks.
3: Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, it, this is it's you know the, the details. You know, the, the name of the defendant is just a minor detail. So it couldn't have happened at a better time of the year. You know, that we can talk about this on April first because it really does epitomize something that would have sounded like an April Fool's story. Uh, you know, in any event. So it, it's it's just really pretty comical, kind of kind of fun.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And and. Uh, we're so happy that Eric does not have to <laughs> come into court and actually combat this thing.
3: Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's the most mild-mannered guy, you know. Yes. He's, uh, he, who
0: would, would want to do that? And, you know, yes, he is he, a consummate journalist. And, uh, you know, as Nate Anderson writes up, he's doing exactly what journalists are supposed to do um, under the law and otherwise. So, has any thoughts on this one?
2: Well, it'd be interesting if they actually went to court and they could say, hey, look, it's fair use, and then maybe Right Haven would have this nice, big, fat precedent against it, so they couldn't do this all the time.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, But, uh, I mean, I was more impressed that Evan was able to recall all the facts of this thing, because this was pretty complex. And I, wow, I I had to look up Right Haven myself because I was preparing for the show, and I just didn't know something like this existed. I mean, they just go out and sue everybody, and they obtain copyrights by doing this? Is that how that works?
0: No, they, they have copyrights and okay. they are trolling for uses of any of the material from the various clients they represent. It's okay. a law firm so in Las Vegas. on behalf
2: of all these, these companies. It right. just seems, oh, I just, I just can't believe this exists, quite honestly. That's what I was just surprised this, like I thought this was a joke.
3: They're, they're technically suing on behalf of themselves. That's what makes this even more trollish is that, you know, Righthaven is not the law firm representing uh, someone else. They are getting by assignment the copyright. Yes. So then they are the plaintiff themselves. They own the copyrights by assignment that used to be owned by that Las Vegas newspaper and the Denver Post. So that, that's what I think is kind of raises the troll sensibilities in people or the, the troll censor right. sensibilities. Yes.
0: the analogy to companies that come along and by a patents mm-hmm. simply for the right to sue over them. Same idea. Um, let's see, Jonathan, any thoughts on Right Heaven and, uh, and or it's a little mistake here?
1: Well, I I think what it it illustrates is the problem that you run into when you treat litigation like a mass-produced widget. Uh, In this Mm -hmm. instance, Wright Haven, since March of 2010, has filed 261 lawsuits over Denver Post and Las Vegas Review Journal material and 57 lawsuits over this particular pat-down photo. When you treat litigation, like a mass-produced widget, you run into these problems. And, and I have a problem with the claim that it's a clerical error. The fact is is that I have, I have the complaint right to my left, and it is electronically signed by a lawyer uh, who, under the federal rules of civil procedure, had to review this, and by signing it, indicated to the court, as, a, as an officer of the court, that it was warranted under existing law and under the facts of the case. And I, I don't see how you can do that and have it be... Uh, strictly a clerical error. Um, This is an error by a lawyer that filed something that shouldn't have been filed.
0: Yep. Well, here's one that uh, I think really has to go in our bucket for Can't Be Real, but it turns out that it is. uh, And this is a web design firm that here in my backyard in Orange County, California, was hit with an award of $770,750 in damages to Roger Cleveland Golf Company because it helped create, host and promote a website that sold counterfeit golf clubs. So it did not itself sell any counterfeit golf clubs or have anything to do with the site other than it's hosting creation. And perhaps the promotion is the problematic uh, area here, but just you know, web designer liability for someone who engages in counterfeiting uh, strikes me as a very dangerous place to go. Maybe this is one of those, Evan, bad facts make bad law kind of cases because uh, the site in question was called, let me see if I can find the name, copycatclubs.com, which uh, maybe should have put someone on notice that what they were engaged in was not the most up and up kind of e-commerce transaction. Uh, But the whole the whole notion that the uh, hosting slash design company could be brought to the mat on this uh, really raised my eyebrows. Am I um, just cutting this company too much slack? What do you think, Evan?
3: Well, I don't know. I, I did not actually read what the court said about this. I just read this article from the LA Times about the the decision. And so, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm thinking about this in a vacuum, and, and I, I don't really know how to, uh, you know, evaluate whether this could be a situation where it's bad facts making bad law. From a theoretical standpoint, um, I'm I certainly know that it would make perfect sense in the appropriate circumstances for a web design company uh, to be liable for the uh, you know the infringement or liability for the the counterfeiting the sale of counterfeiting counterfeit goods that its client is is doing because you know there's this whole idea of of secondary liability for for trademark infringement in the right in the right circumstances it's a little bit you know it's it's a little bit uh, comparable to the question of conspiracy you know working with someone to, to do this. So a, a web developer seems to be in a very good position to uh, further this activity of the sale of, of counterfeit uh, products if they, you know, are, are aware of it and have the ability to control it and, you know, actually do, um, you know, do benefit from it in certain circumstances. So um, it, it could be that that this web developer has gotten the short end of the stick, but, you um, it, it, reading the article, it sounds like they, they knew what they were doing, and maybe maybe this was right.
2: Well, Bright Builders also did search engine search engine optimization, such that when you looked up this uh, this other the actual proper companies uh, golf clubs, you would find this copycat uh, clubs site. So I mean, they mm-hmm. weren't just developing the site; they were like gaming Google effectively, and that right. seems like they're they're kind of participating at that point. I mean, there was no reason to say, Hey, look, every time I look up you know golf company A, I should get this copycat. Uh, they should have, I mean, I mean, I think at the end of the article, there was a, a, a quote here. It says, it was so blatant, we thought it was the perfect case to pursue. With a name like Copycat, a red flag should go up immediately. I mean, hmm. it, 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 it screams like you should be really staring at what you're doing. You can't just go, oh, we're just going to put our head in the sand. We don't care what our clients do, and we're going to just go along with it.
3: Jonathan must have some interesting things to say about that, don't you, Jonathan? I know. I'm
0: wondering, Jonathan, do you think they could have disclaimed their way out of this? Over in the chat, Drock W says, maybe I can sue eBay for that fake Rolex I bought. Well, of course you can't. Could (laughs) it have uh, protected itself, do you think?
1: I don't think in this case, and I think that it's a web developer and therefore it's an interesting story because a web developer was held accountable for what is essentially contributory uh, trademark infringement. Um, But it's not, they weren't held liable because they were merely the web developer that developed the site. They were held liable because they were the web developer that participated in the infringement. And in order to be held liable for contributory uh, trademark infringement, you have to intentionally participate in the infringement. And I think what the court found was uh, in addition to the name of the site that made it clear that they were selling knockoffs um, of famous brand sites uh, and the SEO uh, issues that I mentioned, um, that there were other facts that supported uh, the conclusion that they weren't uh, simply a web developer that, without knowledge of what the company was doing, uh, developed a website for them. They were active participants and partners in the infringement, and that's why they were held liable. I think it's a case that's interesting for us to talk about now, but I don't think that it's going to affect um, the vast majority of web developers who do their work without encouraging, enticing, or participating in the infringement of a trademark.
0: All right. Well, thank you for your thoughts on that. Uh, Next, I want to discuss this new case against Facebook by the parents of Carolyn Wimmer, woman whose dead body made the rounds on Facebook last, last year. It's interesting in a couple of ways. Um, number one, the parents are suing over viewing a photo of their daughter who is no longer with us. Um, secondly, they want Facebook to turn over the names of everyone who ever viewed the photo. And uh, they want liability to attach um, to Facebook for you know, allowing this photo to, to uh, make the rounds. Of course, Facebook, again, we're talking about disclaimers in terms of service. Facebook does um, make people who upload photos represent that they have the rights to do so, et cetera. And in turn, it disclaims any liability for people um, who violate that. Um, so do you think that this is of any concern? Jonathan, let's start with you.
1: Well, well, Denise, I don't think it's any concern to Facebook, because as we know, Mm -hmm. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is going to give them immunity for any of the content that was provided by a third party. Um, Mm -hmm. One exception to Section 230 uh, is with respect to intellectual property rights. But in this instance, I don't think there's a good argument that the parents of the woman who was shown in the photo uh, own the copyright to the photo. Uh, if that's not the case, then I think Section 230 is going to uh, is going to protect Facebook um, for any li- liability that would otherwise attach. Um, the the more interesting part of the uh, of the case to me um, is the desire or the need to obtain the identities of everyone who viewed the photo. And it mm-hmm. seems to me that if it was a matter of merely trying to establish some form of damages, that numbers would be sufficient. But to uh, I don't know if if and this is a plaintiff lawyer in New York. Um, who has some uh, level of, of fame or infamy, depending on how you believe, you know, which side of the story um, with respect to some of his past activities with regards to judicial screenings and the like. But um, the fact is, is that, that it's, it seems to me um, to be fishing for new potential defendants and I'd be interested to see what potential causes of action one would have against someone who merely passively uh, looked at a photo on, on Facebook.
0: Yeah, that does seem like a none. stretch. Yeah, <laughs> I asked any thoughts on this
2: one? Yeah, if terms, if terms of service couldn't protect Facebook, wouldn't this argument prove entirely too much? Wouldn't, like, every site not be allowed to have any photos of anything in fear of being sued for having a photo like this up there?
1: Well, yeah. well they would, and, and, that's, and that's why Section 230 was, was enacted, and, and it was to protect this sort of feeling that the Internet is this Uh, either depending on how you look at it, either the Wild Wild West with no rules, or it's an area, um, a a town square that is entirely protected uh, and uh, where the free expression of ideas is encouraged uh, amongst the populace. So uh, to hold Facebook uh, liable under these circumstances would do exactly what you suggested, which would be to curb the ability of these forums or portals for people to communicate to provide that service to Internet users.
2: I just think it's, it, yeah, it would basically shut down every photo sharing site ever existed, and I don't think that's going to be something that's going to be allowable. Uh, I think it's just, it, the argument is interesting, but suing Facebook is like effectively suing the Internet.
0: Right. Well, let's, let's go to that um, exception to Section 230 for a moment. I suppose there wasn't any controversy about the plaintiffs actually having the right. to sue over this photograph. Um, Evan, is this a problem with Section 230? it's carve out of IP or can sites like Facebook um, adequately deal with this through their terms of service?
3: Um, I suppose you could deal with it, you know, through the terms of service, but without something clear like immunity from suit, which is what section 230 gives us, there's still then this real factual determination that would need to be made as to whether those terms of service are indeed going to make the intermediary, namely Facebook in this case, you know, not responsible. Because, you know, you can, you can, you can sign a contract with anyone and, and disclaim whatever. And you can say even that a contract can't be modified except through writings signed by both parties. I'm making a, an allusion, subtle or not, to another story that, you know, we, we may or may have not have time to talk about. But, you know, contract interpretation and the way that they apply to bind the parties and establish the re- legal relations between them is can be extraordinarily complicated and involve a lot of, here we are talking about expense of litigation and, and headache and emotional costs and all of that stuff. And so in terms of service may in an ideal world and in a, a frictionless vacuum, be great for managing liability. But when it, there are real disputes and there are real photos of real Uh, deceased people being uploaded to the internet, plaintiffs' lawyers get pretty excited and and don't really care too much about what, you know, oh, the terms of service might say. You know, they're going to sue regardless. And my golly, they're going to go in there with a strong hand and fight for justice and what's right and all of that stuff.
0: Well, I wonder if in this next story, you could throw in uh, suing over pictures of deceased pigs to the claims that could be asserted against these (laughs) folks. Um, I'm hoping Burke has queued up for us video called Three Big Pigs um, that is a parody and political commentary that got posted to YouTube. I'm not quite sure how it came my way. It is from a YouTube user named Ergo's Gun. Ego. uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. (laughs) Um, Let's let Burke play it. Uh, Three Big Pigs. Are you ready, Burke? There it goes. Do we have audio? Perhaps we don't have audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll narrate it a bit here. It's, uh, it's Angry Birds, basically, featuring uh, Muammar Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. As there we go, there's our audio. Mm-hmm.
3: Good thing the audio is helping us understand it.
0: Well, the audio is from Disney's Three Little Pigs. Uh-oh. Okay, so watch oh. what happens here at the end. The mighty eagle sweeps in.
3: <laughs>
0: ah. <laughs> Takes care of Mo-Mar. So...
3: Oh, yeah, I recognize that now.
0: So I remember how this came my way. Uh, someone, someone tweeted it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and wondered if, you know, the comment on it was, watch it quick before Disney takes it down. Because yeah, okay. we've, got, we've got the three little pigs in there. Um, and of course, obviously, Rovio might have some kind of claim too. I, uh, I put it on our Facebook page over at facebook.com slash um and asked people to offer a fair use analysis uh, vis-a-vis Angry Birds. And the Three Little Pigs audio, Andrew Thompson said, "Well, the videos transform into political commentary. It should pass fair use muster. I can't imagine Rovio or Disney sicking the lawyers on the YouTuber. But as the video game as the video gains popularity, it could get mistakenly taken down over a DMCA request. Um, I, you know, I, I think it uses all of well, maybe not all of the audio from um, Three Little Pigs, but a good chunk of it." And it certainly doesn't use the entirety of Angry Birds either. Um, I don't know. I, I, as with most fair use analyses, I'm on the fence about this one. It's impossible to make a definitive call because you don't know what a court's going to do. Uh, what do you think,
2: I IS? Uh, anytime you use anything from Disney, I would panic. That's usually what I that's, <laughs> that's my. I mean, there's fair use and there's all those nice, nice rules when it comes to that. But uh, you step on the mouse's toes and they come at you. So I, I don't even, I'm not, I'm not going to even pretend like these guys aren't going to get in a little bit of trouble.
3: Right. You know, there, there is an interesting little potential copyright uh, twist to this. Uh, Webby in the IRC uh, is uh, suggesting, and I don't know, I'm not this much of an aficionado. He's suggesting that the, that the, the song is Prokofiev the composer, you know, (laughs) if indeed that's true. And then remember, so then that, you know, the composition for that might, would probably be in the public domain. Let's just assume that it is. So then we're, say what?
2: But not the sound recording.
3: Well, are you sure? I mean, because this was a sound recording before 1972. Oh, then I'm not sure. So it it wouldn't be under federal cop. Maybe they would have something under like the state of New York. You know, I think that there's state copyright uh, you know, there's, there's protection for a copyright for audio recordings pre-1972 under state law. There's at least one case from New York that, that says New York will recognize that. So maybe there, we don't even need to get to the fair use question if we could, if, if we could show that, that because of its age and its nature in the, the sound recording, there's no, there's no infringement in the first place. I don't know. I just I was thinking out loud. That's Sorry. a
2: great point. That's an, actually, that's an awesome point.
0: I, I love to able to show this, seven because it's another great example of, you know, a wonderful remix found in the wild and uh, featured on our show so that we yeah, could
3: I, th- talk about a-
0: how great they are and how legally dicey they are. Uh, Jonathan, sure. want to chime in on this one?
1: Denise, I, I think, you know, fair use analysis is always very difficult um, because it's a case-by-case uh, review. Um, but I think that under this, these circumstances, I think it's clearly satire or criticism or comment. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it should be considered fair use.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, the mighty eagle at the end is just the best. My son recently discovered the mighty eagle in Angry Birds and has never since been, happ- before or since, been happier. Um So uh, let's get on to our uh, resources and tips of the week. Uh, I've got a couple of both. Um, The one resource is uh, perfect for April Fool's Day. It is from the Manpower blog, B-L-A-W-G, and it's titled How Not to Get Sued on April Fool's Day. So it's a list of uh, the April Fool's Hall of Shame, as he calls it. Um, and uh, things that, you know, if you're going to play April Fool's jokes on people, particularly in the workplace, uh, some pretty commonsensical advice he's got here. Like, for example, don't spray someone with high-powered compressed air because you could actually kill them. Um, <laughs> don't give away a Toyota and then try and pass off a Toy Yoda as the prize because someone might sue you for it. <laughs> breach of contract and fraudulent misrepresentation, that kind of thing. So on April Fool's Day, I figured uh, that was a decent tip. Um, And then another tip uh, would be, I just wanted to pass along because I think it's perfectly legal and uh, we don't necessarily give a lot of how-to legal tips, um, but I did want to um, let our viewers and listeners know how when we're prepping for the show, we get around the Wall Street Journal's paywall. And uh, the way I do that when I need to um, share Wall Street journals and the uh, journal stories and the entirety of them with the uh, folks on the panel and the viewers and listeners of the show is I use Google and it's the I guess um, a good commentary reflection on. Um, the uneasy relationship between big media companies like News Corp and Google. Uh, because while the Wall Street Journal does just about everything they could possibly do to lock down your access to their full-text stories, uh, they don't prevent Google from being able to link through to them. So if you, can, if you have the name of a Wall Street Journal headline, the name of a story, or some text from the story. Now the Wall Street Journal tries to keep you from doing this because if you go to their site and try and copy and paste text, all you get is a bunch of gibberish. They scramble it so that you can't just copy and paste it into Google. But if you can compel yourself to type in a few sentences of text and then search, you get a Google search that then when you click through will take you to the full text of the article. And again that's, you know, probably just a temporary thing. Things don't Stay online through the journal for that long, but long enough so that we can prepare for the show and have you folks look at what we used to prepare and discuss. So that's uh, my legal way around the paywall. If you can get through it on Google, there's there's, you know, we're absolutely circumventing no copy protection to get you there. Um, So there you go. Have at it. Uh, finally, our resource of the week is uh, courtesy of Eric Heels. And let me just get myself back to it here. It is a perfectly non-April Fool's sort of guide uh, that is what all smart companies should know about intellectual property. It's in our discussion points at delicious.com slash thisweekendlot slash episode 105. Um, And Eric has some great points on everything you should know about IP, copyright, patent, uh, patents versus trade secrets. Very good primer if you're a small business to make sure that you are taking care of your IP concerns. So we thank Eric, who's a frequent guest on the show, for our resource of the week this week. And uh, with that, folks, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I want to go around once more and uh, see if you guys have any final thoughts for the day. Ayaz?
2: I, was, I just had a lot of fun uh, listening to you guys, talking with you guys, just uh, bringing back this part of my brain. So uh, <laughs> it was a nice bit of education. Thanks, guys.
0: It's a pleasure being able to chat with you today and as it was yesterday on TNT. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us and your great thoughts and insights. Thank you. Uh, you're the IAS, just the only, one and only IAS on Twitter, right? I'm,
2: well, there's another guy. He's a singer, uh, and I get confused for him a lot on Twitter only because I don't look mm-hmm. nothing like him. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ayaz, and mm-hmm. uh, you can see all the stuff I jabber about there.
0: Great. And uh, tell us, since uh, we've got you here in the chair, and I'm sure people are curious, uh, now that you've moved and are part of TWIT, uh, what your role is going to be?
2: I am the associate producer slash host of Tech News Today. um on three days, three days a week right now. And, Great show. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really like, like watching it, and I somehow wound up going from the chat room to the actual show. I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's a blast. I mean, I get to help prep the show and uh, help bright parts of the news fuse, and I, that's pretty much what I do.
0: Yeah, I remember Jimmy Kimmel when he used to call in to K Rock. He was just some <laughs> random listener who. Uh, <laughs> He would call in and do sports commentary for them? He told them, Hey, you don't have a sports guy, and I'm pretty good at it. And they would just put him on the phone with uh, the radio hosts, and now he's got his own late night talk show. So, I, as we look forward to your uh, rapidly proceeding career.
2: Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> Jonathan, great to have you back on the show.
2: It was a lot of fun.
0: Wonderful. And uh, your e commerce blog is an excellent place for information and uh, updates on everything related to technology and e-commerce law. You're Jonathan Frieden, F-R-I-E-D-E-N, on Twitter and no H in the Jonathan. Anything else you'd uh, like to share with us before we wrap today?
1: Uh, no, that's it, Denise. Thanks a lot.
0: My pleasure. And Eva, great to have you back on the show
3: Hey, well, thanks. I, I had a great time, and I was hoping that we could make some kind of, you know, big news announcement how, you know, like the EFF and um, Jonathan's law firm have joined, and they're now representing, you know, big content in mass, uh, you know, uh, suits against BitTorrent users or something like that. That would have been the perfect uh, announcement to make on April 1st. But, uh, you know, too bad we can't do that. But in any event, it was fun uh, talking with you, Denise. Always fun talking with you, Jonathan. And great to meet you, uh, Iaz. This is uh, this has been a really fun conversation. I hope it hasn't been too traumatic for you, Iaz, getting back to this this that legal portion of your of your brain. But it was it was tons of fun. I think we covered some great issues today.
2: I had a great time. Thank you. Right on. We did, and we,
0: we even have more left over for next week of uh, great stories. If you want to check them out, go check out our delicious links. I have to say a huge thank you to Evan. This is what a gentleman Evan is. He gets pinged by Jackie Chang to talk about this Amazon case this week, and he sends it over my way and says, maybe you want to chime in on this, Denise, which I was happy to do. So um, that was so sweet, Evan, and uh, it was great fun talking with her and wrapping my brain around... That controversy, which I'm not sure I would have done to such an extent uh, if I hadn't had to give Jackie something <laughs> cogent to say about it. So thank you so much. It's always so fun much. to
3: have those little challenges, isn't it?
0: Yes, exactly. Um, and of course, you can find Evan at internetcases.com, and he is Internet Cases on Twitter. And there is an Internet Cases Facebook page that has all kinds of great updates and information Facebook.com Internet Cases.
3: So yes, that, thank you.
0: We'll say goodbye. We'll see you next week. Be safe out there on April Fool's Day. No high tension compressed air hopefully will come your way. Take care.